0: Would you please open your Bibles with me once more to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. First, Timothy. We're going to pick up with verse 8 this morning and uh, spend our time in verses 8 through 10. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Father, speak to us through your word and make us receptive. In Christ's name and for his sake we ask it. Amen. As we began our study of the second chapter of 1 Timothy last week, we made the point that the immediate context of Paul's discussion here is that of public worship. And the first thing he told us about public worship in the church of Jesus Christ is that we are to pray. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men. We are to pray, Paul tells us, for all kinds of people because God wants all kinds of people to be saved and because Jesus died for all kinds of people. If you were not with us last week and you're wondering why I'm saying all kinds of people when the text says all people... And I would encourage you to go to our YouTube page or sermon audio and listen to last week's message where I lay all of that out. As we move on in chapter 2, we find Paul dealing with other aspects of corporate worship the corporate worship of the local church. And he begins by continuing his discussion of prayer, but that discussion then leads us, leads Paul, into other things. And those other things, as we will see, are in the modern day a bit controversial. Particularly those things we're going to be looking at last week, but this week as well. The reason the things that Paul is about to set before us are seen by some as controversial is because they deal with gender. I know, something nobody talks about these days. Anyone who tries to say that Scripture is just an ancient and therefore irrelevant book hasn't read it. We're going to find Paul addressing men and women, and he's going to have, both this week and next week, he's going to have things to say to each. There was a time when we could have taken that last statement for granted. Men and women... Different things to say to each. Of course, we live in a world where that's no longer the case. Some would be quite offended that Paul speaks in terms of a gender binary. Some who are thus offended would want to ask, but what about those who are neither men nor women? And in answer to that question, I would simply reply that Paul doesn't deal with those who are neither men nor women because there is no such thing. God created a binary, men and women. God created man, male and female, he created them. There are two categories of human being when it comes to gender, male and female, and there is No other. There's always someone who wants to recruit Jesus onto their side of a discussion of issues like this. They'll make arguments like Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He must have thought it was okay. Or at least he didn't think it mattered. But Jesus had a great deal to say about all of these issues. Issues, and he said it all when he himself quoted the words of Genesis, that God created man, male, and female. He said it all when he affirmed every jot and tittle of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when we come to a passage like this this morning, and what we'll see next week, we find only what we would expect to find in the words of Scripture. That there exist people who are male and people who are female, and Paul says in perfect harmony with the rest of Scripture that male and female are different. Shocking, I know. Because they are different, now listen closely here, or you'll miss something very important. Because they are different, they are not the same. And Paul is going to tell us that because men and women are not the same, they have different tendencies, they have different temptations, they have different roles, both in the family and in the church. Paul looks at Christian men and women and he doesn't see one undifferentiated blob. He sees the differences, and he sees challenges that those differences present, and in his epistle to Timothy, he blesses the church with his authoritative apostolic counsel in regard to the roles of men and women in the church. Now, we've mentioned this before, and no doubt we'll deal with it again next week and as we continue throughout this epistle, but there are many who would like to confine what Paul says in this epistle to the first century church at Ephesus. They want to say, Paul's just referring to some specific events taking place within that church at that time, and it really can't be taken universally. Paul is not intending us to understand what he's saying here as something which is true in all times and all places. The problem with that is, as you gather up all of the textual evidence for that claim, you end up left with an empty basket because there is no textual evidence for it. There's nothing in the text of what Paul says here that would confine it in any way to only the first century Ephesian church. Instead, what we do find, and what we keep coming back to again and again, is Paul's purpose statement in chapter 3, verse 15. I write so that you will know how one, that is, anyone ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Not just the Ephesian church, but the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul's not writing about a single church and certain circumstances taking place within that specific church. He's writing about the church, the household of God, is not just the church at Ephesus. The church which is the pillar and support of the truth is not just the church at Ephesus. It is the church in every place and every time. And so what Paul has to say to us, and this will become much more clear next week when he gives the rationale for what he says, what Paul has to say to us here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 he is indeed saying not only to Timothy, not only to the church at Ephesus, but to us as well. So as he begins to look at the issue of men and women in the church, he thinks of different characteristics, different weaknesses, which, speaking quite broadly, make both sexes vulnerable to different kinds of sins. The particular weaknesses of men which Paul addresses are prayerlessness and what we might refer to as argumentativeness. In regard to women, he addresses the issue of vanity. Now, as soon as I say that, I know what's going through certain minds. I know of exceptions to that. I know of women who are prayerless and characterized by wrath and dissension, and I know men who could be characterized by vanity. And that's true. Paul wouldn't deny that. I certainly wouldn't deny that. There will, of course, be many exceptions among God's people. But the, the Scripture is full of generalizations, because without generalizations, you can't say anything. Without generalizations, everything we say dies the death of a thousand qualifications. I'm not going to spend the rest of our time together preaching this passage and then stopping intermittently and saying, but there are exceptions. The scripture often speaks in general terms. How about this one, for example, Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, Cretans are always liars. And for 2,000 years, the people of Crete have been reading about themselves (laughs) As liars. I don't know that I've ever met anyone from Crete, but I'm going to guess that if I went there, I would be able to find at least one Cretan who was not characterized by lying. So, with that understanding, let's look into what Paul has to say to us this morning. First men. Verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This is the only place in the New Testament where we read of lifting up hands in prayer. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, stood before the altar of the Lord, 1 Kings 8.22, in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands toward heaven. The psalmist also speaks of lifting up the hands in worship. Now there are other biblical postures of prayer, however. Standing up, bowing down, kneeling before God, prostrating oneself with the face to the ground before God. All these are examples of how God's people have prayed throughout history. So we ought not take this as some kind of universal command that every time we pray, we ought to have our hands lifted up. That's not what Paul's getting at. Our text is not emphasizing the position of your hands. Rather, Paul's emphasis is on the adjective in that sentence. What kinds of hands are to be lifted up in prayer? holy hands Paul's not concerned about my hands he's concerned about my heart he's using the lifting up of hands simply a visual image of prayer when we come together in the corporate worship of the church we pray we trust out of holy hearts And we've lived in an age that becomes excited about image and show rather than the hidden life of the soul. Man does indeed look on outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Our concern is not to say that this is the right way to pray and this is the wrong way to pray. Although, if you want to pray with raised hands, go right ahead. If you want to lift your hands as we're singing and praising God, go right ahead. If you want to shout amen, please do. I would appreciate it. Let me know someone's listening. I know the sign outside has Baptist on it. It's okay. Baptists can be demonstrative. That's perfectly fine. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about raising the spirit of holy worship in all our lives. It would be a monstrous incongruity for someone to come into the assembly of God's people as we gather for worship, red-handed from committing sin, and then lift up the very hands that have been used to commit that sin. Cowardly Pilate may wash his hands after signing the death warrant for the Lord Jesus, but those hands are still defiled. He could not get them clean. When Paul uses the word hands, he's using it as a synonym for life. We come in to the corporate gathering of God's people, and we pray, having prepared ourselves for worship by examining ourselves by confessing sin so that we can come before the lord in right relationship to him. So Paul here is exhorting us to have hands or lives of holiness when we pray. And then, just as he gives us examples of who we ought to be praying for when he mentions kings and those in authority, he gives us some examples of sin which might cause our hands to be unholy. And so he adds the words there in verse 8, without wrath... dissension. How can you pray if you are fuming with rage after a bitter dispute with someone in the church? How can you properly pray when you're harboring bitterness and resentment? The Lord Jesus told us what to do when we're in this kind of situation. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It is holy hands that are lifted up to the Lord. Let's not pass over one other thing about Paul's exhortation. Where are men to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension? Paul says, in every place. Now, I think there are a couple of ways of understanding this aspect of what Paul is saying. First, it fits hand in glove with what we just said earlier, that the things Paul is writing here are not specific to the first century church of Ephesus. They applied to every church every church that existed in the first century, every true church of Christ that exists now. There is no place or time when holiness is not necessary for God's people as they come into God's presence. But I think Paul may be referring to something else as well. Elsewhere, the apostle commands us to pray without ceasing. And if we do that, then by necessity we will be praying everywhere. Now remember, Paul is speaking here in the context of corporate worship, and we don't want to forget that. But there is an application outside of worship. Just as God is specifically addressing men, there is an application here for women. Paul is speaking about holiness here in one specific narrow aspect of our lives, but as he does so, we recognize what he's not saying. He's not saying, make sure that you're holy when you come into the corporate assembly to pray, but any other time, it doesn't really matter. That would be absurd. The command of God for his people is to be holy as I am holy. When is God not holy? Never. Holiness is not something we do. Holiness is something we are. Now, we're still left with the question, why men? Don't women have to be holy too? I think there are a couple of related reasons for this specificity. And it's not that women are not prone to wrath and dissension. But I think that generally it is true that those sins manifest themselves or women, on a more personal level. On more than one occasion, I have witnessed men stand up, for instance, in a congregational meeting full of rage and ungodly hostility. Not here for a very long time, praise God, but I've witnessed it. I have seen women express those same sins differently more quietly with a whispered word or a phone call. And let's not forget the context. Corporate worship. The assembly of the local church. The context is public gatherings. Let's also remember that when we're looking for context in a passage of scripture, we're looking not only at what has become before what, not only at what has come before, but what also follows. What is it that comes next? And what comes next for Paul is a discussion of the respective place of men and women in the leadership of the church. Why are men in every place, every church, exhorted about how they pray? Because in the corporate worship of the church... It was the leaders of the church, that is, men in leadership, who were leading the church in prayer when the church gathered together for corporate worship. So there's also a warning here about hypocrisy in worship. This exhortation is applicable to all of us in various ways, but it's directed to me. It's directed to Joe, to Eric, and to John. It's directed to those who are going to stand before God's people with the task of ushering you before the throne of grace. And so Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, ladies... Paul doesn't let you off the hook here. Verses 9 and 10 are addressed to you. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, it would be very easy to misunderstand Paul's concern here if we failed to note that he is setting up a contrast. It's a contrast between outward and inward adorning. Just like the outward lifting of hands in a posture of prayer is contrasted with the state of the heart, is it holy? Paul is not saying that certain clothes, braided hair, jewelry are wrong in and of themselves. Don't get caught up with that. That's not his point. The apostle is writing about how a Christian woman can make herself more beautiful. And it has nothing to do with clothes and jewelry. His aim is a church of genuinely lovely people. He is, in fact, exhorting women to the same attribute to which he exhorted the men. Note that the last word in verse 10 is godliness. What is godliness but holiness? Of course, there have been those throughout the history of the church who have misunderstood and misapplied what Paul is saying here, just as they've taken other statements of Scripture and misapplied them. That's why groups like the Amish exist, stuck in the 17th century, requiring plain, simple 17th century clothing for men and women alike. This kind of thinking has been present in many, if not most, streams of Christianity at one point or another. You see it in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, for example, in the dress of monks and nuns. This idea that it is the outward which is somehow important. The Apostle Paul isn't banning certain hairstyles or jewelry or having a few articles of expensive clothing, having such things is not sinful for the believer. There is a long tradition, for instance, of Sunday go to meet clothes. Right? When I was growing up, I had certain clothes that were for Sunday. And I knew that. I'm not going to go out and play baseball in those clothes. Unless I wanted a whooping. The New Testament doesn't prohibit a Christian from adorning herself. There was the prodigal son welcomed home by his father and immediately the wardrobe is raided. The best robes are brought out. A ring is put on his finger. What Paul's saying here isn't about hair and clothes and jewelry. It's about holiness. It's about another way of adorning oneself. One other improper way of dealing with what Paul says here is to do what we've mentioned before, to dismiss these words, claim that the expensive clothes, intricate hairstyles, well, that was basically just a, an Ephesian problem. You know, there's a cult of prostitutes in the temple of Diana in Ephesus, and apparently they made themselves up like that. So it was crucial that Christian women ought not dress like temple prostitutes. And that, of course, is true. (laughs) Christian women shouldn't be dressing like streetwalkers. But that's not Paul's point. That is subsumed under Paul's point. Which is why He speaks the way he does about modesty and discretion. Now, be all that as it may, aren't these words of Paul concerning true adorning utterly relevant for us today? What has been one of the features of the 20th and and now 21st century growing enslavement to fashion by both men and women? This is particularly applicable to women, although, as we know, there are plenty of examples of what the scripture would call effeminate men who are equally consumed with replicating that which the world has deemed to be in fashion. If Paul had lived in our day, he no doubt would have added to this list cosmetic surgery and tattoos and body piercings, some of these things may not be wrong in and of themselves, but Paul is not arguing that the adornment themselves are sin, but rather the attitude which lies behind them. That's why he specifically contrasts these things that he does mention with modesty and discretion. So the apostle says, I also want women to dress modestly. Adorn themselves with proper clothing. And he defines proper clothing as clothing which is modest and discreet. And I think there are a number of principles that we can glean from what Paul says here. The first is this. What we put on should not embarrass or tempt others. The Lord Jesus talks of the lustful look in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I've heard professing Christian women respond to this by saying that if men are tempted by what they see, that's their problem. It's up to the men to guard their own eyes. That's not the responsibility of Christian women to change the way they dress so that men will not be tempted. And that's nonsense. That is entirely unbiblical. Yes, men need to guard their eyes. No one's arguing otherwise. But that kind of response reveals a heart which loves neither God nor neighbor. Have you not read? It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Have you not read? Do nothing from emptiness or selfish conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And in this context, I would add, regard one another as more important than impressing the world with the latest immodest fashion. We ask God not to lead us into temptation. And we ourselves ought not lead others into temptation. Second thing we should draw out of this. We should not dress in order to call attention to ourselves. Exhibitionism is being outlawed by these two words, modestly and discreetly. Now that doesn't mean we are not to have any appreciation for style or the fabric of clothes that we wear, or, you know, understatement, clothing, that, colors that, that suit us, you know, good tailoring, but there is a line that you learn not to cross which would mean that you are calling attention to yourself. I'm going to date myself here, but I'm going to do so because the thought is so outlandish and I have yet to witness it. So we're exaggerating to make a point, just understand that. But if you're coming to church dressed like Dolly Parton, you're not conforming to Christ's law of modesty. You may have all the proper body parts covered, but you're not being modest. You're saying, look at me, when we should be saying, look at Christ. I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We are to dress as those who express that reality. One other thing to draw from this. There should be some economy in hairstyle, clothing, jewelry. The issue I'm thinking about here is stewardship. Later on in chapter 6 of this same epistle, Paul is going to say, if we have food and clothing with that we should be content. Everyone has to work out the implications for this according to their own means. I can't tell you when you've crossed the line. I'm not even sure you know, when I cross the line. So I'm not saying there's a hard and fast rule here, but the principle is here. The concern is that no one put pressure on a brother or sister or a Christian family who cannot afford to spend exorbitantly, to keep up with everyone else. There should be, within the the, the gathering of the people of God, no outrageous displays of affluence. You remember what James said about the rich and the poor in church. If a rich man comes in and you usher him to the best seat in the house and you push a poor man off into the corner so that he's you know, sitting beside the pillar, be behind the pillar, and he can't see anything. If you've done that, you've done it wrong. But have you ever wondered how they would know the rich man was rich? Maybe he's a guy who was known around town, but maybe he was boasting about his money without saying a word about it simply in the way he was dressed, with his monogrammed robe. Well, the Scripture condemns these things. Proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. This word modesty is something we need to hear today. Immodest dress alters one's approach to the one who is dressed in that way. Will people who are not Christians think soberly about a message telling them that they need to repent and believe in Christ and present their bodies as living sacrifices to God or they will go to hell when that message comes from a woman with half her body looking bare. I know, there's snow outside, not an issue for right now, but Look around in the summer. These are issues for the people of God in this culture in which we live. Because it is a culture which brings pressure from every direction. It is completely inimical to the authority, purity, and credibility of God's people when one dresses in a way which brings attention to them rather than to the message, rather than to Christ. There comes a time when women have to choose whether they want to be ogled or taken seriously. And if they want to be taken seriously, then they need to dress seriously. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit who is saying, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves modestly. Paul's writing the words, but these are the words of the Holy Spirit. When Jeremiah talks about the decadence of this society, he says something very striking. In his own day, he described his own society this way, and you tell me if it doesn't describe ours. They did not know how to blush. They did not know how to blush. May that never be said of God's people. Everyone acknowledges that a definition of what is beauty is pretty much an impossible task to come up with that. But Christians say, do you want to be beautiful? Then you've got to know Jesus Christ, because he is the most beautiful thing of all. If we want to know what beauty is, if we want to even approach the definition of what beauty is, we look to Christ. In spring of 1721, the 18-year-old Jonathan Edwards was confronted with this truth in a way that he never saw it before. He recounted it in what he called his personal narrative. The whole little paragraph ought to be studied, but he records this in one place. My mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no books so delightful to me as those who treated these subjects. Those words in canticles, he's referring to the Song of Solomon, used to be abund- used, uh, were used abundantly in me. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. The words seemed to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. There came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. I seemed to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet Gentle and holy majesty and also a majestic meekness an awful sweetness a high and great and holy gentleness. That is Edward's description of Christ. Would it be that it could be a description of us? You become wiser by being with wise people hearing them speak, watching them under pressure and in difficulty. You become beautiful by being with beautiful people, coming under the influence, not of their look, but of their spirit, their graciousness, their humility, self-restraint. That is the beauty of holiness, Conversely, you become coarse and hard and ugly and worldly by keeping company with such people. Have you ever seen an outwardly beautiful woman who then opens her mouth and As you listen to what comes out, she is transformed before your eyes from beauty to ugliness. Because that which is inside of her is flowing out of her mouth. It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And it doesn't matter how beautiful the outward visage is that woman is transformed into ugliness because the true self is revealed. We sing of Christ, love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. He is the joy of heaven and is to be at the center of our lives. And as He takes... Center stage in our lives. He begins to teach us about ourselves. And He begins to tell us what matters to Him. Because what matters to Him ought to be what matters to us. So, as we come to a passage like this, it's Jesus speaking to us get your priorities straight. Stop being controlled by what the world tells you. Rather, you be the one who gives a message to the world in the way you live and in the way you dress. It does not honor Christ to look drab and ugly. Neither does it honor Him to pursue a look of ostentatiousness. We know the extremes to avoid, and that's helpful. We're not hostile to any sense of harmony and attractiveness. However, we are not a gathering of Epicureans here on the Lord's Day either. We know those extremes. We dress for the occasion, and this occasion, as we gather together among God's people to worship Him, that occasion is to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is this. Are you going to allow the Word of God to influence every part of your life? I'm saying that you have freedom as a Christian to wear nice clothes. Even clothes that are in style in our day. That's not the issue. You have a right to wear makeup. You have a right to have your ears pierced. The the principle is this, that these things do not define beauty for the Christian. The Spirit defines beauty for the Christian. In Proverbs 31, we find the description of a woman of noble character. And it ends by telling us that charm is deceptive and is fleeting, But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is what Paul wants us to understand. This is what the Spirit wants us to understand. As we come into the presence of God, particularly as we come in the corporate gathering of the church. We are not here for ourselves. And we are not here for other people. We are here for Him. And that should control not only how we dress. That's just an outward manifestation. It should control how we think. It should control how we behave toward one another. It should be control how we love and serve our Savior. Father, make it so. There's so much here, Father, that we could continue talking about these things for quite some time. But, Father, we need to be reminded of these things because the world is giving us a completely different message. Think only about yourself. Think about what you want. Think about how you can get what you want. And you tell us, Father, no. Think about my Son. Have your life and your world revolve around Him. Oh, Father, if we do that, that is how we will avoid wrath and dissension. That's how we will avoid immodesty and ostentatiousness. Oh, Father, may we learn what true beauty is. And may we learn it by looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the most beautiful person that we could possibly conceive. May He be our model, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.